0: Well, good morning. Today will be a different kind of message, uh, a message that requires us to do a great deal of moving around in the scripture. So it's kind of like a topical message, but on steroids. Uh, you know, we've done some topical message, messages lately in this uh, wisdom and worship series, but this is going to be even kind of to a greater degree. So most of our scripture passages will be on the screen for the sake of time. We're closing in on the end of a series called Worship and Wisdom from the Psalms and Proverbs and the titles of today's message is The Giving and Receiving of Constructive Criticism or Counsel and most of our verses will come from Proverbs. On January 28, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger and its crew embarked on a mission. The most outstanding objective of the Challenger 51L mission was the delivery of educational lessons from space uh, by teacher, Krista McAuliffe, and I don't know if you older folks remember that, but just 75 seconds after liftoff, the shuttle suddenly erupted overhead, disintegrating the cabin along with its crew. I'll never forget sitting in class and just watching as that horror unfolded, as all kinds of debris just plummeted to earth. What had happened? Well, as teams of researchers examined the wreckage, the specific cause was found to be faulty O-rings. We were talking earlier about the cost of O-rings. They had become defective and the resulting mechanical failure is what led to the tragedy But that wasn't the whole story. The New York Times actually broke the whole story and found that the ultimate cause of the space shuttle disaster was actually pride. A group of top managers failed to listen carefully to the warnings, to the advice, to the criticisms of those down the line who were concerned about the operational reliability of certain parts. So just think about it. Heeding advice, heeding criticism could have saved those seven lives. The Proverbs have a lot to say about giving and receiving instruction. We need a message about this because your success in life and the success of those around you depends on how well you do this. Think about the nature of the local church. Council is a is a great part of what happens in the local church, isn't it? When we come together, a lot of times what ha- what's happening is that counsel's being given and counsel is being received. We need to know how to do this. We're told in Proverbs about the benefit of counsel or criticism. It's not bad to receive constructive criticism, it's not weakness to seek advice it's a strength you are not being strong by doing things on your own and seeking no one's counsel in fact a case could be made that you're being a fool proverbs 11:14 says where there is no guidance a people fall but in an abundance of counselors there is safety proverbs 15:22 says without counsel plans fail but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, I think we can all agree that no matter how it comes, constructive criticism or counsel many times is hard to take. There's always inherent risk, the risk of an intensifying conflict. And so that scares us. But if we learn how the cross shapes this subject, then we can better learn how to do this. And and this is what I mean by that. Specifically, and we'll walk this out in greater detail later, but there are two things that I want you to walk away with today. Two great principles that I want you to learn. That first, that in the cross, I already agree with God's judgment of me. Second, In the cross of Christ, I already agree with God's justification of me. And we'll talk about that more later. We'll bring that back at the close of the message. And let me give credit where credit's due here. Alfred Poirier, a PCA pastor and former chairman of the board of directors of Peacemaker Ministries, has really helped shape my thinking in regard to all of this. Uh, in, In his connection of the cross criticism. I just want to give credit where credit is due. Right now, we'll begin talking about the issue of receiving criticism or counsel. And we'll do this by characterizing various types of fools, those who spurn instruction. Now, a number of the scriptures that I use really could overlap into other areas, but there were just so many scriptures that I just opted to use them only once. And I also want to say that as I characterize these, you may, you may find yourself a little bit in all of these, or you may find one of these characteristics that really apply to you. And so here's a list of the nine fools that I could think of. Uh, the Scripture calls the one who won't listen to counsel a fool. So here they are. It's not an exhaustive list, and you've got them. There on the screen. Number one is the loner fool, the defensive fool, the people pleasing fool, the pouting fool, the passive aggressive fool, the emotional wreck fool, the gullible fool, the brawling fool, and the malicious fool. So we're going to begin with the loner fool. This is the guy who keeps his distance from everyone. He finds more comfort in being able to call his own shots and being accountable to absolutely nobody. If he's a believer, you may see him at church, you may think he's an upright guy, he's a likable guy, but you notice he's always at arm's distance. He's never quite letting anybody in, he's never really confiding in anyone, he never puts himself in a situation to ask counsel of anybody. He's more comfortable being a loner. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs twenty-eighteen says, Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance wage war. Next we have the defensive fool. The defensive fool always has a comeback. He always has a reply. He's never listening. He's always responding, always arguing. He always has an answer or a reason in response to your advice, your response, or your counsel. The defensive fool is neither pliable nor teachable. Proverbs nineteen twenty seven says, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Proverbs 26:12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 19:20 says, Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Sometimes we're defensive because we're prideful. Sometimes we simply don't like the source of the counsel. We experience this all the time when we have multiple children, right? But the real question is this Are the words being spoken wise words? Are they God's words? Are they truth? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word is always good. I mean, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through any of us. Amen? Next, we have the people pleasing fool. This is the person more concerned with what everybody else thinks than what God thinks. They run to everyone else seeking counsel without approaching the most important one they should be seeking counsel from. They don't seek counsel from the Lord. They don't search the scripture. They don't pray. They skip over the most important thing. They're so eager for man's approval that they never seek God. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Speaking of the Pharisees, John writes in John 12.43, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Isaiah says in 2.22, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he. Don't be a people pleaser. Next we have the pouting fool. Some people pout when they're confronted. They become silent. They wear their feelings on their sleeves. And most likely they do this because they don't realize that counsel or constructive criticism or rebuke is actually a loving thing. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Next, we have the passive aggressive fool. This is the one who will act as if they hear you. They won't show any outward signs of disagreement, but will begin avoiding you or injuring the relationship without coming right out with the fact that your counsel or your constructive criticism really made them angry. It seems virtually impossible to get them to be honest with you. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So don't be a passive-aggressive fool. Don't be fake, one who pretends to receive counsel, but is never really listening. This lacks transparency and honesty. Proverbs 15:31 and 32 says, "The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Get this, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence." Next, we have the emotional wreck fool. This is the one who is so emotionally fragile that you can't even approach difficult subjects. When you try, they completely fall apart. This is often a defensive posture, kind of a manipulation of sorts. Because it puts a halt on any real conversation. But when we realize how loving godly instruction is, we can become more open and more responsive. Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 29.11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Next is the gullible fool. This is the guy who believes absolutely everything that they hear. This person is often swayed by some very bad counsel. They're often led astray by false teachers, false prophets. 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Proverbs 24 6 says, For by wise guidance you can wage your war. And in abundance of counselors... There's victory. And what's the key word in that verse? Wise guidance. Not all counsel is wise. Consult the word of God. Consult men and women who have lives that display women. And you know, we should probably note right here that it's really important who you hang out with. You know, the Proverbs... The Proverbs were a teaching tool for Jewish fathers to their children, right? And having the right company, having the right friends was a huge message, is a huge message in the Proverbs. Don't be gullible. Don't surround yourself with fools. Surround yourself with wise people. You know, if you're always hanging out with people, you know, without gospel purposes. If you're always hanging out with people that don't challenge you, you have the wrong friends. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Next, we have the brawling fool. This is the guy that's just a hothead. Anytime you try to bring reason to the table, he just blows up. You constantly feel like you're walking on eggshells with this guy. Proverbs 13.10 says, By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Finally, we have the malicious fool. This guy is is the worst. This guy just exudes arrogance. He's not listening to anyone. This is the one who takes everything that you say and they twist it, always turning everything against you, never hearing you, but always in the mode of tearing you apart. The malicious fool has absolutely no fear of the Lord. And Christians really need to beware about how much they say in the presence of a malicious person. Proverbs twenty-one thirty-four says, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, a haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Proverbs 29, 9 says, If a man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. The scripture seems to make a distinction between being engaged in unproductive argument and making a defense, a reasonable defense for God's words. We see this in Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. These verses say, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, at first blush, th- these two verses seems they seem to be in opposition to each other. However, the first verse is addressing the issue of being drawn into endless argument that produces no good thing. And the second verse addresses... A reasonable defense of God's truth. Proverbs 9, 7-9 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Scoffers won't hear instruction. They're too smart for their own good. They're too arrogant to listen. But the simple or the wise will hear instruction and they'll learn. Proverbs 19.25 says, Strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. And many of you have lived this, right? Maybe you grew up in, in situations where you actually learn from the unwise actions of older siblings or our parents or friends and you learn what not to do because of them right we all have a grid for that i think it's a biblical thing we've spoken about the issue of receiving counsel let's now talk about the issue of giving constructive criticism or counsel there are various types of counselors that may not always be particularly helpful Now, notice there that I said not always. Again, this is not exhaustive. I have nine of them. Number one, the brash counselor. Number two, the arrogant counselor. Number three, the cold counselor. Number four, the overly empathetic counselor. Number five, the idealistic counselor. Number six, the presumptive counselor. Seven, the passive counselor. Number eight, the super spiritual counselor. And number nine, the pragmatic counselor. The first is the brash counselor. This is the tough guy talk. It's kind of like redneck talk, really. (laughs) This is that helpful counsel that you receive when you confide in someone about really difficult like interpersonal relationship uh, challenges. And, you know, they give you that great counsel that's like, well, if, If they said that to me, I'll tell you what I'd do. Or it's like, well, they'd only do that once, and, you know, you fill in the blank. Guys are really bad about doing this, right? Guys are terrible at this. And uh, the tough guy brash counsel, first of all, isn't reasonable. And second of all, you really wouldn't do what you're counseling anybody to do anyway. So... We don't need to be brash counselors. And there's biblical warrant for being cautious with this kind of counsel because think of it this way. Isn't this really what split the kingdom of Israel? In 1 Kings chapter 12 verses 6 through 19, we read the story of Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, and the transition from Solomon's kingdom to Rehoboam's kingdom. In that story, we have a real-life picture of how this brash counsel devastated Israel. The passage says, Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old man who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, it's almost like, well, I'll tell you what I'd say. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And so what was the result of the brash council? It was the split of the kingdom of Israel. The result of the young men's immature council was that the northern and southern kingdom of Israel split. And all this because... Of brash counsel. You know you think about it. Who dealt with the fallout of that? Did those young men deal with the fallout of that? King Rehoboam dealt with the fallout of that. Next is the arrogant counselor. This is the one who always seems to be on the end of giving counsel. But never receiving counsel. They have plenty to say to others, but they never open up about their lives or ask for counsel. It could be the result of pride. It could be the result of hidden sin. It could be the result of insecurities. I mean, because think about it. It makes us feel better by being on the side of giving counsel, right? But avoid the temptation to never look at your own life or ask counsel. I mean, this is what Jesus meant in the statement in the Sermon on the Mount, right? About the log in your own eye. There is a great temptation to become arrogant when we give counsel. Don't succumb to that. Next is the cold counselor. This is the person who is completely disconnected emotionally. They don't care about feelings at all. They don't care about how they deliver a message. They don't care if they're rough. They don't care if they're uncaring. They only care about truth. The relationship doesn't matter at all to them. Sometimes you hear these people say things like, Well, I don't care whether they like it or not. Well, I don't care whether they like me or not. Be careful with that. Being that kind of person will alienate you and it will hurt other people. It's not wise. In 1 Peter 3 Peter writes, To those who are enduring suffering, To have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I I love this passage here. Proverbs 16, 21 through 24. Listen to this. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it. But the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Don't be a cold person. As we've just read, it does matter how you say things. The opposite of the cold counselor is the overly empathetic counselor. This is the person who's worried about giving godly counsel, wise counsel, because it may offend. This person's usually really good at caring. They're usually really good at listening. Um, They're usually good at comforting. But they lack on speaking needed words of truth. And really, a lot of times, these people may have exactly what someone needs to hear. Proverbs 28, 23 says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Next is the idealistic counselor. This is the one who gives counsel with no regard to practical issues of life. You might be able to say that they haven't walked a mile in the other person's shoes. They kind of have a one-size-size, Fits all approach to everything. They're just very idealistic about everything. Makes sense in their head. And it really makes me angry to hear what some people, how some people are counseled, what some people are told to do as if it were written clearly in the scriptures. And this isn't always the case, but there are times where this happens because there are actually holes in our understanding of the gospel. I think unknowingly, we have made a list of things that Christians do that God never said. And we counsel other people like God said it. You know, it makes me think of when the religious leaders tried to accuse Jesus and the disciples of breaking the laws on the Sabbath, which were actually laws that they came up with, not God. And I've seen this do this with so many things. I mean, parenting, homeschooling, the types of sermons we preach, the types of foods we eat, how we raise our children, whether or not we let our wives work, how many children we should have, and on and on and on. And we've made these secondary issues equal with the gospel. When Christ has said that you have freedom, Christian, you are free in Christ. Do not distort the gospel. And what happens when our idealism crumbles? What's left in the wake? Broken, confused people. Have you ever been there? Think carefully about how you counsel, pray carefully about the things that you tell people. I knew a pastor once that instructed the women in his congregation that since they were supposed to stay at home to not seek out a college education. And I saw firsthand how that counsel devastated so many people. Be careful about your counsel. Be prayerful. Next, we have the presumptive counselor. This is the one who is slow to hear and he's quick to speak. They may catch the smallest aspect of a conversation or they may know just a small part of a situation and they've already formulated their thinking on everything about it. Many times the presumptive counselor has already formulated the condition of someone's heart or motives before a question is ever asked before they ever hear out a situation they're quick to presume they're often quick to jump to negative assumptions which is in complete contradiction to 1 Corinthians 13:7 that says we should hope all things we should believe all things but we're often quick to judge people's motives In a negative sense, aren't we? Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. This is the reason that we get in to this issue. All too often, we are not dialoguing with one another. We are not listening. We are not hearing the heart of the other person. What are we doing in dialogue? We're thinking about what we're going to say, right? I want to encourage you, don't be... A presumptive counselor. Don't be quick to speak and slow to hear. Listen to people. Think before you speak. Next is the passive or lazy counselor. This is the one who just doesn't want to get involved. To them, ignorance is bliss. They want to come to church. They want to do their Christian duty. They want to walk away. They want to see nothing. They want to hear nothing. They don't want to get involved in anyone's life. They don't want to help anybody. And yet Paul says in Galatians 6 that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now what does it mean that when we bear one another's burdens we are fulfilling the law of Christ? Well, it means that we are most like Christ when we get involved and help each other spiritually. This was the essence of Christ's life, wasn't it? He was sinless. Jesus was sinless. Our sin was our own. He didn't own any of that. And yet the sinless Son of God came to bear sin that didn't belong to Him. Jesus wasn't passive and He wasn't lazy. Next is the super spiritual counselor. There were some people in Thessalonica Thessalonica like this in fact they were so spiritual they weren't even working they were just sitting around waiting for the rapture and this is why Paul warned the Thessalonian people again and again to be on task to not be idle and to warn others to not be idle now we are we are called to be eager for and to hasten the second coming of Christ But we're also called to work and live until he comes. Now the super spiritual counselor pretends that none of that is true. The super spiritual counselor typically loves doctrine. They typically love theology. But they don't really acknowledge practical down to earth issues. The super spiritual counselor, sometimes their life is a wreck. Sometimes their life is not very orderly. Sometimes super spiritual counselors counsel you to do some really spiritual things like don't have any insurance, just trust the Lord. Don't save any money, just trust the Lord. Live off of other people's income and let's call that trusting the Lord. Good theology and a trust in the Lord doesn't mean that we're reckless and dumb. Now I'm not trying to minimize... I'm not trying to minimize the challenge of how difficult it is to live in this world and not be of it. I know how difficult those waters are to navigate. I mean, a lot of times I feel like I err on one of those sides. But there are many practical verses about the use of our time, the use of our money, the use of our hands. Just being hard workers. Don't be the super spiritual counselor. Lastly, we have the pragmatic counselor. This is the one who gives no regard to God's truth, no trust. God's principles are too hard. Too impractical. So we try to be pragmatic in our counseling. We try to just give counsel that we feel works. For the current scenario you might see this in regard to some of the really hard truths in the Bible that we're afraid of like what we call missionary dating you know we feel so bad for people that you know don't want to be single and so we don't encourage them to marry only believers to date only believers it's a hard truth Sometimes we're afraid to give counsel in regard to staying in marriage where there's no biblical reason for a divorce. Just because someone has fallen out of love. And so we're afraid to give hard truth on that. In those times, it can feel like, well, the Bible's just not very practical. Trust the Word believe the word now we've talked about what giving constructive criticism or counsel shouldn't look like now let's take a look at what it should look like I took these from Dr. Poirier's article let's think about these principles in regard to giving healthy criticism number one I see my brother or sister as one for whom Christ died number two I come as an equal who also is a sinner. Number three, I prepare my heart so that I don't speak out of wrong motives. Number four, I examine my own life and I confess my sin first. Number five, I'm always patient, in it for the long haul. Number six, my goal is not to condemn, but to build up. And number seven, I correct or counsel gently. We talked earlier about how not to receive constructive criticism, but now let's look at how to receive it. And to do this, we'll return again to Dr. Poirier's connection between criticism and the cross. Dr. Poirier uh, notes that there is gain in taking criticism. King David says, says it this way in Psalm one forty one five. he says let a righteous man strike me it is a kindness let him rebuke me it is all on my head my head will not refuse it David knew the profit of gaining wisdom knowledge and understanding is that how you perceive it is that how you perceive correction counsel, advice, criticism. How can we move from always being quick to defend ourselves against any and all criticism to becoming like David, who saw it as a game? The answer is by believing what God says about us in the cross. This is my favorite part right here. First, in Christ's cross, I agree with God's judgment of me. In other words... I see myself as God sees me, a sinner. In response to my sin, the cross has criticized me and judged me more deeply and pervasively than anyone ever could. In addition to that, the cross doesn't merely criticize or judge me, but it actually condemns me for not doing everything written in God's law. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The crucified person also knows that he can't defend himself against God's judgment by trying to offset his sin by all the good things he's done. This is what James says in 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So as a person crucified in Christ, I admit, I agree, I approve of God's judgment of me. Secondly, in Christ's cross, I agree with God's justification of me. So I not only agree with God's judgment of me as a sinner on the cross, but I also agree with God's justification of me. Through Christ's sacrificial love, God justifies me. Paul says in Romans 3.20, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. The cross of Christ reminds me that the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. And because of this, God has thoroughly and forever accepted me in Christ. So now I don't have to practice self-justification. Instead, I can boast. I can boast in Christ's righteousness for me. If you truly take this to heart, The whole world can stand against you. The whole world can criticize you. But you'll be able to say, if God has justified me, who can condemn me? If God has justified me, if God accepts me, if God will never forsake me, then why should I feel insecure and fear criticism? So our new response to criticism should be this. Friend, you haven't discovered even a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said much more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion, my foolishness my foolishness than anybody can say. So I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. They are oil on my head. Uh, While the music team comes up, I just want to uh, help us apply this sermon by giving some questions for reflection. Number one, how do I typically react to correction? Number two, what is my first response when someone says I'm wrong? Number three, How well do I take advice? Number four, how well do I go seeking advice or counsel? Number five, are people able to approach me and correct me? Am I approachable? Number six, am I teachable? Number seven, do I harbor anger against the person who criticizes me? Number eight, do I immediately seek to defend myself, hauling out my righteous acts and personal opinions in order to defend myself and display my righteousness? Number nine, also, can I give criticism in a way that communicates mercy to another? And I didn't add this one up here, but I want to throw this one in. Am I always in the mode of fault-finding? Am I always in the mode of fault-finding? Or am I in the mode of seeking to build my brothers and sisters through honest concern and care? And finally, number 10, how can I best give accurate, fair criticism, well-tempered, with mercy and affirmation? May God apply his word to our lives this morning. Amen.